0: here's the thing. I grew up in the golden age of family TV sitcoms, right? So um, all the way from Family Ties to Wonder Years to Full House and Family Matters. It was a glorious time of television where you'd sit down on Friday, well, a lot of them, right? Or during the week and you'd sit down and watch and see these families work through problems as they went through their day. And in 30 minutes time, everything was wrapped up and put a bow on it. And everything was back to normal, right? Major problems solved in 30 minutes every week. Or if it was a really big problem, sometimes they do a special two-part episode to be continued, right? So here's what I want you to do. So we get the series started. I'll explain why we're doing that in a minute. I want you to turn to somebody around you. Tell them your favorite 80s or 90s family TV sitcom. If you can't name one, we will have education classes about that starting this afternoon. All right, so tell somebody around you your favorite 80s or 90s TV family sitcom, all right? So, uh, all right, anybody got one? By the way, I've heard some discussion from the youth. Doctor Who does not count, all right? All right, what do you got, Joshua? Cosby show, Joshua. is coming strong. How many of you would you say Cosby shows number one? There you go. We got a lot. Alright, anybody else? What do you got? Look at all the youth raising their hand like they were there, alright? Chris Bag in the back, what you got? As much as I love B.A. Barabbas, that does not work, alright? Family TV sitcom, alright? Should have known better than a call in a bagger. That's what I a lesson is from that. Amen. Can I get an amen from the youth in the house today? All right. All right. Anybody else? What do you got down here, Sam? Full house. All right. You, you got a real one back? Oh, they just took yours. Just took full house. I would have never pegged you as a DJ Tanner man, but I'm glad to know that. All right. Katie, what do you got? Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. All right. A little hip hop. All right. All right. We got Mason. What do you got? Alf, that's strong right there. It's time, confession time for your pastor. I may or may not have had a plush Alf doll at one time in my life. All right, no more, Justin. All right, so here's the reason. Here's the reason we're doing this series, all right? Over the next four weeks, we're going to talk about some real issues in a family, and we're going to set it against the backdrop of this ideal that's out there, these perfect television families. They can solve everything in 30 minutes and be done and move on to the next week. You know, it's almost like all those shows ended every week in a similar fashion. Like with a family hugging and they freeze frame on the hug or the high five or the just that moment of joy when everything's fixed. I loved watching those shows growing up. And then you have a family. And you realize Problems don't get fixed in 30 minutes time. Can I get an amen in the house of the Lord? They don't just get wrapped up all beautifully in a bow every week and like, wow, it all just worked out perfectly. Like there's real life that happens. And the image that sometimes was given there is uh, detrimental to real life because we think, well, I shouldn't feel that way or struggle that way or look that way if I'm going to be a real family. So over the next few weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about some issues for real families, and we're going to set it each week against a backdrop of one of those 80s or 90s sitcoms. Today's is we're going to talk about family matters. All right. It's what you saw in the opening credits. Right. And how many of you remember family matters? Right. So when I say family matters, what do you think of first? First. Urkel, right? Do you realize that Urkel wasn't even on the first four episodes? And then they put him on, and for whatever reason, they thought, we've got to keep putting him on until the show, Family Matters, eventually became about Urkel. But let's not talk about those terrible days. Let's talk about the early days, all right? In the early days, Family Matters was about the Winslow family, who was a, um, just a normal family in Chicago, Illinois. They were middle income. They had uh, a good life. They lived with their kids. And then her mom had moved into the house with them. They had Urkel as the crazy neighbor next door. And it was about how family life ought to look. And it gave us a glimpse inside to different problems and what was happening. And at the end, it always got wrapped up in a cool way with somebody popping a suspender saying, did I do that, right? Well, today what I want to do is talk about the relationship that matters the most in a family. And so, our family matters today is that relationship which holds the most force, which matters the most to us today. If you've got your Bibles. I want you to turn to kind of a crazy place when you think about marriage and you think about family and you think about real families. We're going to turn to the book of Malachi. All right? I heard some woes. Like, we haven't been in Malachi in a while, right? Now Malachi is where we're going, and my my uh, we're going to look today at a particular passage of scripture. I just find fascinating because of what it states about the importance of the relationship we're going to talk about. Now, if I ask most people about Malachi in church circles, one of the places Malachi has been used a lot is to talk about giving and tithing and not robbing from God, and it is true that. Uh, God speaks to the people and says, quit withholding from me. Uh, we probably should have done this at the offering time. Quit withholding from me that which is mine. Quit holding back from that which I have given you that you are to give back to me. But there's also a warning in Malachi about the fact that if we don't get the most important relationship in a family right, it can be detrimental to our entire society. Not just your family. Not just your physical well-being, not just your emotional well-being, but society. And it seems kind of crazy to even think about that, but we're going to look at it in a minute. I'm going to show you in God's Word where it says that. Our goal today and our goal through this series is that we would think about families, we would think about relationships, we would think about our time together in the way God intends us to think about it. Here's the thing about your family, okay? For most of us, our families are where the real us comes out. I see some head nodding, all right? I see some pointing at people. I see that, all right? Like, like, because we interact with our families on off times, down times. You go to work, you're in a meeting, you're on. Like, you're going to be polished and good. But you go home and you sit down and it's supper or after supper and you relax. And sometimes we take for granted those relationships inside the family because they're just kind of there. And yet they are the most important ones we have. And so our goal through this whole series, our goal specifically today when I talk about the marriage relationship, the relationship between a husband and a wife, between our spouse and ourselves, is that we want to think the way God intends for us to think, not the way the world tells us to think. Romans 12, verse 2, you don't have to turn there, it's going to be up here. It says, do not be conformed to this age. Conform there literally means don't be pressed into the mold. Don't be molded into what this world will tell you. Don't, be, uh, don't try to think about what this world wants you to think. Don't allow the culture out there to shape who you are. Don't be conformed to this age, but be transformed, be changed from the inside by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing and perfect will of God. You see, God says that what we have to do is we have to understand what the world is thinking and say that's not who we're going to be and allow God. Now, God doesn't say, now, do this, act this way. He says, I'm going to transform you from the inside out to allow you to become the person God intends for you to be so that you can live out what God has called us to do. And the first step to that is to recognize, okay, so what is the world trying to tell us to do? What is it literally trying to mold us, kind of conform us, trying to change us into believing? When we talk about the most important matter in a family, the most important relationship in a family, it comes back to the mom and dad, the husband and wife. You think about what does the world tell us about that relationship, specifically about how you find one, and make it good. I, I just thought of this. There are three or four things I thought. The world's way to love. And the first one is you find the right person. You decide who that is. You go seeking them. Go find them out who they're looking. You think about how people talk about looking for love. I'm hunting for it. I'm looking for it. I'm searching for it. You find the right person. Then just, you know, almost without even trying, you just fall in love. Right? how many poor decisions have been made in life because, well, I just love Him. I just love her. Like, I just couldn't help myself. I just love Him so much. Right? You fix all your hopes and your dreams on them. They're going to fix everything. It'll be great once we're together. I mean, nothing can stop us now. It's all good. And if you fail, just repeat steps one, two, and three. Right now, you think, okay so what do you mean this is what the culture does? I mean, just in some movies all over the place. Right. Girls trying to decide which one's the right guy. Should I go with the guy that's a vampire and could turn me into one or the werewolf at night? I mean, here's the choice, really. Neither is the choice. Right. I don't care if you're on team, whatever. I don't even know what the teams are. And I don't need to know. All right. But you think about that, I just couldn't help myself. He's such a cute vampire. Or the show on television that propagates this more than anything else. Directly from the pits. Where let's see how we determine who is our lifelong soulmate by doing an interview with 25 different bachelorettes all at once and determining who is perfect for the bachelor. Anybody here watch The Bachelor? Yeah, I'm sorry about you. I really am. I mean, think about it. Okay? Let's just rationally think about the show for a moment. OK, like rational. The show's not rational. Exactly. But let's try. All right. A guy or if you're watching The Bachelorette, a girl has 25. Is it 20? I don't know how many they have. I'm sad for those that know exactly how many it is, all right? So I don't know, It's 20, 25, 112, I don't know how many it is, all right? And they come in, and they gather around, and they step out of a limo, and they say, I am your soulmate for life. I can tell it by the fact that we have made eyes with each other for the first time, all right? And then they go off, and they go on dates, normal dates, like dates where you fly in helicopters to tropical islands and spend it eating supper together. Anybody here ever, uh, like in the last five five years, anybody been on a helicopter date in here? Yeah, that's what I thought. All right. So, no, no we just, we're lucky to have dates, right? We're lucky to get there in a car. It's how we'll get there, right? And then, just to propagate this fantasy of a life that's out there, how do they tell the women at the end of the episode that you're one of the eight remaining that could be my soulmate? A A rose a rose, this fairy tale, Disney life, which some of you are lucky because I didn't go off on the Disney tangent for a little bit. All right, give them a rose. And at the end of it, I have chosen my soulmate. And then the world is shocked when they come back and reveal who it is and they have after the rose. And they're like, oh, yeah, we're not together anymore. My soulmate and I broke up after a week and a half. Really, it's amazing. Some of you aren't laughing because you're like, Quit talking about that show. I love it, alright? But think about it. That's what the world says, right? You find the right person. You just fall in love. And then you fix all your hopes and dreams on them. And if that doesn't work, well, you just did not have the right person. Go find the next one. And you just do that over and over and over again. That's in dating life. It's one of the problems with our kind of culture of dating that's out there. I heard somebody say it this way. Dating in today's society is doing married things without marital commitment. It's doing things you only do in marriage, but you're doing it without the commitment. And so what that tells you is if it gets old, you just get out. And as you're getting out, you realize in your brain, you're processing. I didn't find the right person. I got to go find somebody else to fall in love with and put my hopes and dreams on them. And then when they fail me, I just get out again. And eventually you find someone that you make it long enough with that you think this is the person I need to marry. And then you marry them. And then two years down the road, you think, well, this isn't working out. And so you think, well, it's just like before. I just get out. Because here's the deal it doesn't matter who you marry. If you fix all your hopes and dreams on them, you're going to be sorely disappointed. Can I tell you this? Marriage should never work. You know why? It's because it's two sinful people with problems that get together and become one couple whose problems are magnified. Got a good one there. Right? So... All these people think we're going to get married. And once we get married, all our problems are gone. You know, Nope. they multiplied like we'll solve our financial problems. We'll solve our financial problems by getting married. There'll be two incomes instead of one. Yeah, that don't work, right? I've got all these emotional issues. That's okay. He completes me. (laughs) Well, we are. It's it's not amens I'm getting. I'm getting the no's. Right? And so you come together, and if you place all your hopes and dreams on them, they're going to mess up. Susan and I have been married 19 years this summer. It's amazing how we're still this young and already hitting 19 years of marriage. All right? 19 years this summer. And here's the thing I want to tell you. I love Susan. We have a a great marriage. I'm thankful to God for our marriage. But here's the deal. In those 19 years, there have been moments when she has disappointed me. And many more moments when I have disappointed her. Like 8 to 1, I think is the count, right? I see lots of wives shaking their heads on that one. We may need to do some introspection, all right? Lots more times. And here's the thing if Susan puts all her hopes and dreams on me, she's going to be disappointed. And this is the world's model. You could take almost any romantic comedy that's been popular in the last 20 years, and this is the plot. Find the right person. Sometimes that takes a little while, sometimes that takes a trilogy of movies. You fall in love, you can't help it, it just happens. You fix all your hopes and dreams on them, then usually there's a problem they got to work through the problem. But when they work through the problem, they realize they had the right person all along. He was standing right next to me. They fall back in love and it ends happily ever after. But that's not real life. Now here's God's way, all right? God's way is not to find the right person. It is to become the right person. It's not to fall in love. It is to walk in love. And it is to fix all your hopes and your dreams on God. And if failure occurs, you go back to step one, two, and three. The idea is you're not out there looking for the right person. This is if you're single in the room, this is true. You're not out there searching, hunting, trying to find the right person all the time you're spending time becoming who god intends for you to be if you're married right now if you have someone that you are married to and you have a spouse your job is not to make them into the right person is to become the right person yourself to seek god that's why the series we just did on embracing the turtle that series is a marriage series It didn't seem like it. I know we're talking about scripture reading and fasting and prayer and celebration. But the truth is, as you're placing yourself in the place where God can bless you, where God can teach you, where God can change you, where God can mold you, you're becoming the person God intended for you to be, which means you're becoming a better participant in your marriage. You know the old illustration is that the only way marriages really work is that you have God at the top and you've got two people seeking God independently. And as they're seeking God independently and together, the closer they get to God, the closer they get to each other. One of my favorite stories about that is a, a guy named Lee Strobel. There's actually a movie coming out about his life and about his writings called The Case for Christ. Some of you may have read The Case for Christ. If you have it. it's a great book about skeptical people skeptical about the Christian faith. But Lee Strobel was, um, before he became a Christian, he and his wife, neither one were Christians. They were living in Chicago. And Lee Strobel was an uh, a investigative journalist in the criminal division in the Chicago Tribune. And this was back when people actually read newspapers like a lot. And so it was a very steady, good job. And you're in Chicago, you've got lots of a crime to investigate as an investigative journalist. Living a good life. And as he tells the story, suddenly his wife ended up at this church and began to follow Jesus. And he said that my goal was then to determine that it was wrong so I could prove to her it was wrong so that we could get back to living our normal life. And so he began to investigate like he would anything else. Now out of that came the case for Christ. kind of know the end of the story probably. He became a believer. But he says that as he became a believer, even as he began investigating the claims of Christ, before he became a Christian, he could see how it was helping he and his wife to grow closer together. And then once he became a Christian, as they sought God together, it changed the dynamics of their relationship. You become the right person. And then you don't fall into love. Biblical love is nothing you can fall into. It is a commitment Of treating the other person well. It's a choice of how you live your life, of what you do. And then you fix all your hopes and your dreams on God. See, the truth is, our world tries to tell us that they want us to conform to this image of what marriage should be, what a relationship should be, and that it's just you'll find that right person, that soulmate. You'll just know it, you'll just feel it, you just won't be able to get away from it. And if it doesn't work out, it's okay. Maybe it was just for a season. You just walk away. God's way involves us becoming the right person, committing our lives to them and fixing our hopes and dreams on him. And there's a word that ought to be a part of our Christian vernacular when it comes to how we talk about marriage, how we talk about our love of our spouse. And it's a word that's not real popular in certain circles today because it's a little too absolute. But God uses it about us and he calls us to mirror our relationship with our spouse to the relationship he has with us. And the word he uses is never. Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you, he says in Hebrews 13.4. And when you as a spouse put that on the table and say never, it's amazing the possibilities for growth. That the Lord opens up in your life. Uh, I was listening to a pastor this week that says that when he's doing premarital counseling with a couple, you know, they go over the vows. Like, that's always one of the things he does. And he's one of these pastors um, that says that he doesn't let people write their own vows, they have to do the vows he has. He says, one of the vows in there is, um, till death do us part. He said, but the way it says it, that only death will separate us. And so he says, he's in there counseling, and they're going through the, the vows, and he says, okay, let me just ask you a quick question. Um, is there anything else you can imagine that could separate you? they are like, what are you talking about? Those of you in this room don't deal a lot with couples that are getting ready to get married. Um, there is this kind of rose-colored, glassy-eyed affection for one another that you just see, like, oh, never, there's nothing that could ever separate us, right? He says, I'm serious about this. Is there something that you say... This could separate us. He said, because if it is, we're going to be truthful and we're going to put it in the vows. Because when you say only death shall separate us and you're making a commitment before God, you say only death shall separate us. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Now, I know that in some minds in this room, there are already questions and uh, arguments brewing And here's what I want to do. I want to tell you, there's some of you in this room that have experienced divorce. You're in a a blended family or you're in a, a broken family or you've had someone mistreat you or you're in a marriage relationship right now where there is significant abuse going on. Here's what I want to tell you. There are absolutely places and times when the best thing to do is to separate yourself. Okay? So I'm not saying that when, when I say never, I'm talking about the commitment that both parties are making to one another in a accordance with their faith and love with Jesus Christ. And we're actually going to talk in a week or two, we're going to talk about specific things for families that are blended, families that are broken, single moms, single dads. We're going to talk about some of those issues. But here's what I want to say. Today, I want us to remember the ideal of God. And it doesn't mean if you haven't lived up to that ideal that you are somehow less than. Because God says, never will I forsake you. Never will I turn away from you. And that doesn't matter what you have done. You cannot do anything to undo the love God has for you. So I don't want you to hear this as a, as a direct attack on you. But I do want you to hear what God's word says about the ideal. Which leads us to Malachi chapter 2. Malachi chapter 2. Here's what's happening. The Lord has told them that He loves Israel. He said, I love you. I love you with an everlasting covenant love. He said, but I have these things against you. And He starts listing out things that He has against the Israelites. Things that they are doing that are causing Him to withdraw His presence. That are causing Him to take away His presence from the people. And in verse 13 it says, this is another thing you do. So this isn't the first, this isn't the last, this is one of the things. And the idea in it is that they're all equal. So this is, this is equally as important as what I'll talk about in a few minutes, that they are robbing God by not giving him what they want. To the priests that are doing a disservice to the way that they are discharging their office. He says, This is another thing you do. And he says, You are covering the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping, with groaning, because he no longer respects your offerings or receives them gladly from your hands. So we're going to stop there for a second, because what he's saying is, Look, you are coming to the altar, you are coming to worship. You are worshiping and celebrating the Lord. You are praying before God. You are weeping at the altar because of your sin and because of what's happening. And you're wondering, why is God not doing anything about it? Why is God healing me? Why is God still punishing our nation? Why is God letting this happen to me? He says, you think you've got this whole um, ritual worked out. You're still there. You're still crying. You're still weeping. You're still worshiping. You're still praying. You're going to church. You're You're doing all those things. And you ask the question in verse 14, why? And the Lord gives the answer. Because even though the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, even though I have established marriage and given you a partner to spend the life with, you have acted treacherously against her. She was your marriage partner and your wife by covenant. Didn't God make them one and give them a portion of spirit? What is the one seeking? Godly offspring. So watch yourselves carefully so that no one acts treacherously against the wife of his youth. He says, listen, one of the major problems in your community is that you no longer value the commitment that is a part of marriage. Here's what I want to tell you, okay? And I could give you studies on this, on civilizations that have broken down because of the breakdown of the family, particularly the breakdown of a husband and a wife in a marital relationship. But I want you to see it from God's Word. That He says one of the reasons that they are struggling spiritually, one of the reasons they're not being blessed as they would like is because they have acted treacherously in their relationships with one another. He goes on to say towards the end of that, the man who hates and divorces his wife, the man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, does violence to the one he should protect. Be on your guard. Do not be unfaithful. Now here's what I want you to understand from this passage, and then I'm going to give you uh, two or three quick things that I think we need to, to, to work on together. I just need you to understand. We, we started the whole thing with a little silliness about family matters, but the truth is, The relationship that matters the most in your family is the relationship you have with your spouse. God says it's so important that it can bring down a civilization that does not honor it. Now, here's the thing about it. He, he's talking to the Israelites, and he gives a couple of reasons for that. It's because he has given it to him. it's a gift that he has given to us that you look at your wife, you look at your husband, you look at your spouse, and you think this is a gift from God. This is something he has given to me, and I should be thankful and grateful for that. And when you despise the gift that God has given you, you despise what God is doing in your life. But secondly, this is kind of an interesting thing he says in there, because part of the goal is Children that are holy or children that are blessed or children that will carry forth the name of God into the next generation. Some of you are on the, um, the list or you're, you get emails from Jeff. Jeff does a Monday um, kind of video series. And for, for months, his video series were on the leading indicators of why some youth stay in church and why some youth leave the church. Like once you hit high school, once you hit college, these studies are out there about all these people. That I mean, if you look at some of the studies, it's eighty to eighty-five percent of the kids that are in church when they go to college won't come back to church. So some people did some studies like, well, why do they stay? And there are lots of stuff. I, and I would highly recommend if you want to know where those are, Jeff can tell you the, the uh, um, Vimeo page that's got them all up there. There are lots of good stuff in there. But one of the indicators that I've seen, one of the indicators that Scripture kind of teaches through is that one of the major ways you make sure your kids grow up and are still active in the church is that you have a mom and a dad who are committed to each other and first and foremost are committed to the Lord at the same time. Because your kids realize if one or both of you are just playing the game. And so as you're committed to the Lord and as you're committed to each other, you develop this next generation. Can I tell you something? If you're concerned about the morality and spirituality of the country in which we live, which it's hard not to be concerned about it when you watch the news or hear the people talk about it. If you're concerned about it, that's not going to change through Facebook arguments. It's not going to change through CNN debates. It's not going to change by whoever is sitting in the chair in the Oval Office on 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue in Washington, D.C., or who holds the nine seats in the courthouse right across the city. But you know what will change it? It's a generation of young people who are sold out to the Lord. And the way that is developed is by moms and dads glorifying God together and committing themselves to one another. Are there stories out there? Absolutely, there are stories of people that come from homes. We have some, We have some. I've seen in my 16 years of pastoring, we have seen in youth groups and people that have gone on that come from homes where that's not the case. But I just want to tell you, why well, take the chance? The Lord is looking for uncommon commitment. And what He says to the people of Malachi is, commit your lives to one another, to the wife, to the husband I have given you. And here's what commitment is. If you want to know commitment at its most basic definition, commitment means staying loyal to what you said you were going to do long after the mood you set it in left you. Commitment means staying loyal to what you said you were going to do long after the mood you set it in left you. So for instance, if I decide this week that I'm going to become a workout warrior, and I go to work out and I just work out until it feels uncomfortable and then I quit. I am not committed. It is just a convenience. If I decide this week that I'm going to lose twenty pounds, and I'm going to do that by a strict diet, and I'm going to give up everything that I need to give up until I see it at the next meal. That's not commitment, that's convenience. And if you say, Till death do us part, But you really mean until it gets really tough. That's not commitment. That's convenience. What God's looking for is commitment. Four things that we ought to do with our spouse that shows commitment. And this comes directly from the way God treats us, the way God sees us. Our relationship is supposed to mirror God's and the church. And so four things, real quick, we're going to do. First of all, we commit to prioritize our spouse. Commit to prioritize your spouse. We know this because God committed to prioritize His relationship with us. 1 John 3.16 says, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down His life for us. The idea that Jesus, who was... uh, King of the universe, there with God the Father. God creates us. We turn our back on Him. We walk away from Him. And He says, I don't care. I'm going to go after them. He sends His Son, Jesus. And love is this. The world tells us what they think what they know what love is. All the radio stations try to tell us what they think love is. But Scripture tells us that this is how we know what love is. That Jesus died for us. And then it says this. This is 1 John 3.16. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. The idea is as Jesus laid down his life for us. We lay down our lives for others. And the idea for us is that I put priority in my relationship with Susan over every other earthly relationship I have. If it comes down, I'm just telling you this church, there's only one person in this room that gets my full undivided attention if they need it over everybody else. And if it comes down to you or Susan, Susan wins. Now, it's not always easy to do that. And there are times when work gets in the way and schedules gets in the way and kids get in the way. But the truth is, if we're going to have committed marital relationships, if we're going to have committed um, relationships that glorify God, we have to prioritize each other. And can I tell you one of the foolishnesses? Of our society of today, even Christian parents, is, that we often over and overextend ourselves to the point where we can't put priority where it needs to be. Opportunity becomes the enemy of priority. See, in our culture, there's this thing called FOMO F O M O, the fear of missing out. Now, we think. We think that, man, I just don't want my kids to miss out on that. Well, I can't miss out on that. Well, what would happen if I miss that? And we live our lives worried about what we're going to miss and forget to take advantage of what we already have. And we overschedule ourselves to the point that we can no longer put priority where it needs to be. We need to commit to prioritize our spouse. Secondly, we commit to pursue our spouse. God pursues us even when we don't deserve it. The book of Hosea proves that beyond any shadow of a doubt. When he tells Hosea to marry the prostitute Gomer, and when they marry and she leaves, God says, go get her. And they come back, and then she leaves, and God says, go get her. And then God says, this is my relationship with my people. They leave, and I go get them. And can I tell you something? You need to pursue your spouse with the same kind of never-ending, never-stopping love that God pursues us. Because here's the reality. There is nothing that your spouse has ever done to you that is greater than what you did to God. There is nothing that you have ever done to your spouse or that your spouse has done to you that is greater than what you did to God. Sometimes people question that and I would just say you have an overinflated idea of how good you are if you think that you didn't offend God more than your spouse has offended you. Because the eternal God of the universe who gave you everything you needed for perfection was rejected when you said no sir and you walked away and the severity of the offense is generally tied to the severity of the one being offended and when you offend a holy God. An eternal, infinite God. It is eternally, infinitely bad. And yet, Revelation 3.20. This is the end of the book. He's still coming after us. Written to churches. This is often used for non-believers. But this is to the church. He says, look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open it, I'll come in. This is a church that left him. This is a church that abandoned him. He says, I'm still here. Still knocking. Still pursuing. Still coming for you. We commit to prioritize our spouse. We commit to pursue our spouse. We commit to protect our spouse. Psalm 121 tells us that the Lord does that for us. The Lord will protect you from all dangers. He will guard your life. One of my roles as Susan's husband is to protect her. One of your roles as husband or wife is to protect your spouse. And I don't just mean that when you hear a strange noise in the middle of the night, guys, that you're supposed to get and get a bat, like you're going to do something about it. All right? I always like Susan. What do you think I'm going to do if it's a, you know, homicidal maniac coming after us? Right? I mean, you protect their reputation, you protect their livelihood, you protect them by your words. There should never be a reason for you to speak poorly of your spouse. In public. Never. And then lastly, and this is the weird one for a second, but I'll explain it. We commit to purify our spouse. Ephesians five twenty five says this. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her to make her. And there's the thing. We love that. We talk about that. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Christ laid down his life for the church. But this is the reason Christ did it. It was to make her holy, cleansing her by washing with water through the word, to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. And then later he tells us he's talking about profound mystery, husband and wife, but also Christ and the church. Now here's the idea. What he's saying is not that and by my love I can in any way add holiness to Susan's life that God has not given to her, but that in my love for her, in my relationship with her, my goal should be to help her in her relationship with God. It should be to move her higher in that relationship with God. It means that we are trying together, passionately pursuing God together, pursuing one another helping them become the people god intends for them to be my question is what are you trying to do in your marriage so he say i don't know i'm just trying to make it through well i don't know maybe i'm just trying to get my way turn him into the person i want him to be or maybe you think i just want to fulfill everything that they have that they need from me All of those are failing propositions. The reality is that our goal in marriage should be to help our relationship and our spouse become more and more like Jesus on a daily basis. Commit to purify your spouse. The most important relationship in our families are our marriages. And if you committed to that, if you're striving together, pursue God together It changes the family and the world around us. And family matters become matters of glorifying God. Let's pray together.